2: You ever try to sneak into a meet-and-greet of your favorite artist by pretending to be a professional photographer?
0: Dude, the camera is like an all-access pass.
2: Or get on a morning TV show by pretending to be a famous chef.
0: We were bored. We wanted to experiment with the
3: inanity of morning news shows.
2: Or maybe accidentally, at church. I realized
4: I'm being herded into the church hall with all the children. I'm thinking, oh no, I'm going to have to pretend to be a child.
2: Or have you ever impersonated super famous megachurch pastor Joel Osteen at one of his events?
1: And so they're like, dude, you should just, this Joel Osteen event's coming to LA, let's go. And I'm like, you know what? What do I have to lose?
2: Or pretended to be a billionaire so you could photograph the view from a high-rise real estate listing so you could make a picture book about wealth inequality? No? Well, you're about to meet folks who did. I'm Kyone Wolf. Stay tuned for stories about acting like you belong. That's next on Audacious. Right after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. I love Reddit. While it's not without its problems, this mostly anonymous giant internet bulletin board has a plethora of communities called subreddits that bring all sorts of interests together. There's the subreddit Look at My Dog. Ask Me Anything, Today I Learned, Thrift Store Hauls, Shower Thoughts, Backyard Chickens, and my personal favorite, Onion Lovers. Another favorite of mine is the subreddit Act Like You Belong, where you'll see a lot of stories about how if you put on a hard hat, carry a clipboard, and walk with urgency, you can get through a lot of doors that you normally wouldn't. A chef's jacket works really well for this, too. And you'll read a lot of stories about people finding their way backstage or to some private event posing as a photographer, like Rayanne Falugi, He's a 17-year-old from Chicago who's now a legit paid photographer for HipHopDX.com. But when he was a much younger, fresh-faced lad of 15 years old, and he found out that his favorite artist ever, Chance the Rapper, was going to be at a private meet and greet, he steadied himself, grabbed his camera, and...
0: I thought there would be, like, strict security, but I literally, I just walked in, and there was a police officer there. And I just started making conversation with her, you know, just to, like, get her off my case a little bit. Wait, did they have, like, any wristbands or anything? Yeah, yeah, they gave wristbands. Apparently, they gave wristbands. I had no idea until... But your camera was your wristband. Yeah, my camera was my wristband. Exactly. So I walked in with my camera, just no questions asked. And um, lo and behold, Chance just walks through these grand big doors. And I'm just like, oh, that's him. And then I was like, well, I mean, I got to... If I can't get a picture with him, I'm going to get a picture of him. So there was a huge crowd all trying to get to him. And I just raised my hand and I went click. So then I like went to the front and I was like, excuse me, excuse me. Like I'm a, I'm a photographer whatever. He walks by, he like shakes my hand. I'm like, it's really good to meet you. He's like, it's good to meet you too. I got to like talk for like a minute, maybe. I don't even remember what I said. I was probably like, I'm such a big fan.
2: When you got home and you dumped the photos onto your computer and you saw what you got,
0: what kind of photos did you get i was like holy I'm like that's Chance the rapper on my camera <laughs> that's honestly all that could go through my head it was crazy
2: when you look at that picture what does it mean to you
0: like <laughs> that's a good question i feel like it's kind of like the start of like me sneaking into places and like me like acting like i belong like this is how i got my start dude the camera is like an all access pass someone sees you with a camera it's like you're a mock to a flame so get a camera and just like make sure your work is good because if your work is bad then you won't really get anywhere
2: do you think that exercise of acting like you belong has made you a more confident person outside of the meet and greets and concert scene
0: initial gut instinct yes obviously like it's good to be insecure like we're all human but like it could be the separating factor from a life-changing event if i was too insecure and too much of like a goody-goody i'd be like i wouldn't be where i am now
2: so you acted like you belonged and and here now you belong
0: yeah exactly acting like you belong it makes you sort of belong in a way like i feel like that's kind of a weird statement but yeah all all love, it's all
2: love. Today on Audacious, you're going to hear from people who've acted like they belonged, as performance art, or to poke fun at religion, as a means to take pictures from some of the highest penthouses on earth, or even on accident. First, a local TV takeover. You know how local TV stations have morning shows, where they do segments on pets who are up for adoption, or with entertainment acts that are passing through the state, or with chefs who do live demonstrations? Well, you're about to meet Nick Pruer and Joe Pickett. They're the co founders and curators of the Found Footage Festival, which is at the beginning of their sordid tale of TV takeovers that eventually led to a very scary and expensive lawsuit. I'll let Nick fill you in.
3: Joe and I have been touring with the Found Footage Festival since 2004. And very early on, we started sending out press releases to try to get people to come out to our show. It's kind of a hard sell. It's like, What am I going to go see? Um, What's the show? And so we thought the best way to do that would be to go on TV and show some of these clips that we're going to be showing and tell our story. So whatever city we were going to be in, you know, Sacramento, Indianapolis, you know, San Luis Obispo, we'd we'd send out press releases saying, hey, we're going to be in town. We'd love to come on the show, show you some clips. And uh, we started getting booked on these morning shows. And I think just as quickly as we started getting booked on them, we realized how inane they were. We'd show up and the news anchors would forget we were coming or they would get the name of the show wrong or...
5: You have to get up so early in the morning too, you know? And it was just like, we wondered if we were even reaching our audience. You know, it was like, who actually wakes up at six in the morning to watch these shows and to figure out what they're going to do for the weekend? I don't, I don't know. I mean, it was just, it just felt dumb to do them.
3: The other thing is we'd be in a waiting room with like Chinese acrobats and a, gar- a guy doing a gardening segment, and then they'd be talking about a plane crash. And we'd be like, what are these shows? You can't go from hard news to a fluffy variety show. Yeah, it just seemed so incongruous to us. And so in the process of doing these, we, you know, we continued to do them, but we had to make them entertaining for ourselves. So we started doing something called the two word phrase challenge.
5: And right before we would go on, I would I would whisper two words into Nick's ear that he would have to say at some point during the interview. And so the best example is I I told him before we went on, I said, you have to say the words basketball murderers and murderers has to be plural, too. So
3: the interviewer was getting crazy. I could tell he's trying to wrap it up and I had no idea how I was going to say this still. And then at the end he goes, uh, so who are the kinds of people who make the videos you find? And I was like, ah, (laughs) light bulb went off. I was like, they are, they are uh, crazy. They could be basketball murderers for all we know. We just don't know where these come from. The guy
5: did not get an eye at it at all. He just kept going. Nick said basketball murderers live on television. He just kept on moving. And it was just like, we had so much fun doing that that we were just like, we did more of them and more of them. And I'd give them lists of two word phrase challenges.
2: And after that, there was sort of an evolution of these characters that you would bring. Yeah.
5: Nick and I weren't touring at the time. So I was like, let's, let's try this idea where we write up a press release for this fake person and send them out to these morning news shows. And so the first idea was this Kenny Strasser, the yo-yo expert. And the idea was that he traveled around the schools teaching kids about the environment with his yo-yo. And I did this with uh, my buddy, Mark Proch, And surprisingly, we got booked on like seven morning news shows. And Mark has no idea how to yo-yo. He can't make it come up after it goes down.
3: And in the press release, there was all these fake accolades. You know, he, he won the uh, Kyoto International Tournament. He won the Hank Zimmer Yo-Yo Award, which if you do a Google search, any of these stations should have been able to vet it. So the experiment was, will they book this totally, obviously bogus yo-yo expert? And then if they do book him, can he go on and never successfully do a a single yo-yo trick?
5: Yeah. One thing that we did when he got on is like he would, he showed up with the yo-yo, but he forgot to bring the string. Or for another one, we, uh, he showed up with his yo-yoing arm in the sling. (laughs) So you would describe the tricks. he would be like, see what I would do
3: (laughs) here. As if that's entertaining to anybody.
2: (laughs) Now, just to be clear, your team, when you go on these morning shows, no one makes money off of these appearances, right?
5: No, nobody makes money on this. and I think that's what confused people after the Kenny Strasser stuff. People were like, are they trying to promote something? Or why would these sociopaths just go on here and pretend to be somebody that they're, you know, I think that's what.
3: Is this viral marketing for Axe Body Spray? No, (laughs) we were just, we were bored. We wanted to experiment with the inanity of morning news shows.
2: And another character you created for these morning shows was Chef Keith. Here's a few gems of Chef Keith.
3: How about a mashed potato ice cream cone? You put a little scoop of gravy, it can be room temperature because your hand kind of warms it up. There's a statistic that statistic that around the holidays, around Christmas, especially between Thanksgiving and Christmas, one of the highest suicide rates, and uh, I think part of that is because of the stress of what are you going to do with these leftovers. This is not vegetarian. I recently went vegetarian, so some of the uh, recipes in here aren't, aren't vegetarian, it's fine. Okay, so For me, it's like part health reasons, but yeah. then also you read things like uh, the average person eats like a pound and a half of feces a year. Yeah, like, that's really No strange. thank you and this is so fun my daughter's uh, spirit and curtis and love these smoothies you're gonna have whipped cream left <laughs> over right oh, I'm, ah. I'm
2: so sorry it's oh okay. god
6: um, we're gonna throw things TV. out to mark for a check of our weather
2: please tell me how chef keith came to be there
3: was an apb that went out after the yo-yo guy saying hey if anybody claims to make sure to vet all your guests all the stuff so we, we wanted to see if people had learned their lesson. And so we thought we'd pitch an even more ridiculous character. This was a chef who was like a rock and roll Guy Fieri type chef who owned a cafe that we made up in New York. And his uh, philosophy was called Live, Rock, Eat. And um, had just written a book about what to do with your Thanksgiving leftovers. And um, so we had a friend mock up a book cover. And Joe and I brainstormed all the what we thought were the grossest possible concoctions you could make on a morning news show. One of the ideas was
5: something called turbo gravy. And the idea is that you take all of your Thanksgiving leftovers and you'd put them into a blender and then mash them all up and then pour them over corn
3: or make them, make into, them into a, a smoothie. smoothie.
5: Yeah. So that was, the, that was the conceit behind chef Keith is that he had this like rock and roll attitude. And again, like they, they all went for it. They all were just like, I think it ticked all the boxes of they're like, okay, this will kill 10 minutes this uh, this guy has a personality, and there's going to be a demonstration. Boom. We're done. Easy.
2: All right. Then after that comes Chop and Steel. Tell me about Chop and Steel.
5: So then I think it was uh, maybe three years after Chef Keith that we wrote up another press release. This time we said that we were a strongman duo. Nick and I were strongmen, and he, like I don't know if you can see, but I'm not strong at all. I'm,
3: it probably comes across on radio, just how weak uh, we are. <laughs>
5: <laughs> We're not strong men. But we said that we had won America's Got Talent in 2012 or something like that. Something they could easily look up. Easy to fact check that one. Yes. And we got responses immediately, like more than all the other ones, too. And we only did three of them. And then we got sued in federal court.
2: Wait a minute. You're jumping the gun. So when you were on these morning shows, what would people see you do?
3: So I went on as steel and Joe went on as a guy named Chop. And we were wearing Zubas and, uh, you know, the workout pants that we were just swimming in. And uh, we would wear um, tank tops and bandanas that said our names on them. And our slogan was give thanks for strength. And uh, thanks and strength both had apostrophe S at the end, which still bothers me. I mean, I know we did it to bother people. And then we would go on and do really unimpressive feats of strength. So I chopped twigs in half. I would raise up my shirt and he would throw sticks against my naked back.
5: And then uh, it's like an endurance, the pain endurance kind of a thing. Joe attempted
3: to break the world record for most Easter baskets stomped in a minute. We hit a tire with baseball bats. Oh, yeah. At one point, we hit two tennis rackets together a bunch of times. Just things that, you know, seemed like what you would do as a strong man, but just were really unimpressive.
2: Now, were there any points during these few, these select appearances that the TV people would say, oh, this is a joke. I get it. You got us.
5: Well, there was one news station in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, that saw us when we showed up, they had already said yes in the, in over email. And then we showed up and they said, Oh, what is this? You guys are the strong men duo. And then they had to call their boss. And then we had to be in character and they're like, sorry, they've turned us away. So that was the one that of all the dozens that we've done of these things, that was the one that turned us away. Otherwise, when we were there in the room, they didn't question it. You know, I mean, we would help and cl- help clean up afterwards,
3: you know, we went and didn't just like leave it a mess. The station that we showed up and turned us down, it was it was sort of like, OK, good for you. You figured it out. You're doing your jobs as journalists, you know, and we we just played it straight and we're like, OK, I understand, you know, and then we went across the street and did the other news station.
2: <laughs> so this is the infamous appearance on WEAU's morning show, Hello, Wisconsin, that really gets you into trouble. Everything seemed to go fine during this filming. And then.
5: Well, then then we got a I think we got an email from the anchor saying what showed up at our door was not what the press release said was going to happen. And then I think three months later, we uploaded it. And then we immediately got a notice that we were getting sued. We found out in the
3: New York Post, actually, that uh, a reporter called and said, do you want to talk about your lawsuit against gray media? And we're kind of like, huh? It surprised us because they had to stick around after the segment and do a promo for them, like "Hey, you're watching WUEC while holding a cement block," and the segment aired. And they we weren't um,
5: mad when we left all these places. Nobody was mad. I think that they actually appreciated that we gave them an entertaining segment.
3: But the, the owners had a different take on it, I think, and that that's where <laughs> that's where the blowback came from. The the managers who own a hundred news stations, the are parent companies of yeah, mm-hmm. yeah.
2: what. Was their gripe? What did they say you had done to them legally?
5: Fraud, conspiracy to commit fraud and copyright infringement, which, you know, we took it off of YouTube when, we, when they sent us the cease and desist. So the copyright, I mean, we, we took it off of YouTube. And then the, the fraud and, and conspiracy to commit fraud, I mean, I, from what we learned is that you have to show that there was some damage in order for fraud to be valid. And there wasn't any damage. If anything, it drove more traffic to their website.
2: And you, anticipating a fight, you set up a GoFundMe. Fast Company wrote an article about your situation and titled it Inside the Dumbest First Amendment Battle of 2017. What kind of responses were you getting from people when they heard about this lawsuit?
3: I remember, like, Penn Gillette, got behind her cause and, and a bunch of, like, uh, First Amendment people um, glommed onto it, and we unwittingly became like these uh, free speech champions, you know? You know, we, here we are doing this experiment that really exposed how these journalists were not doing their jobs, and making a fair criticism of the news, and that's protected speech, you know? And uh, them suing us was saying, hey, the onus isn't on us to do any of our due diligence as journalists.
5: If we would have had the money to be able to continue to fight this, we would have totally won this In a, if it had gone to trial. Instead, we settled out of court.
2: What does it mean to settle out of court in this case?
5: Uh, we just came to an agreement on on what would make them happy and what would make us happy. And I'll just say we won for the amount of publicity that we got and, you know, the amount that they wanted at first compared to how it ended up. We're not allowed to talk about the money part, but. We gave them
3: nothing they asked for, but Vice News was about to run a piece that I think was accurate and made them look like complete idiots And the day before it was to air, they called up our lawyer. They left like five messages at midnight saying, let's just settle this. Let's settle it. So, yeah, that's why we feel like we won.
2: Knowing all you know, would you have done it again? And if so, what would you have done differently?
3: I I would definitely do it again. I I would say both of us could be shirtless next time. (laughs) I think... That's one big regret. I was, yeah, I was going to say, yes, I would
5: 100% do it again. But this time I would set the tennis rackets on fire. <laughs> I think that would just be more of a spectacle than than what actually, it didn't look that impressive.
3: Uh, on, the, you know, yeah. <laughs> on fire would have been cool. And we have a lawyer now. So, you know, you know once the pandemic's over, who's to say we might not be out again um, on our tours with found footage doing this uh, in the mornings?
2: Yeah,
5: we're emboldened. So, yeah.
2: Well, if you contact anybody at Connecticut Public Broadcasting, they will do their due diligence, and if they're smart, they'll have you on their show.
3: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's only the dumb stations that get burned on this. So.
2: Well, Nick Pruer and Joe Pickett, I am really glad that I vetted you thoroughly. Thank you so much for telling me your story.
0: Awesome. Thanks. Is there no truth anymore? The curtain's been lifted. The strong man is trembling. Help us,
2: Lord. When we get back, what happens when a woman pretends to be a billionaire so she can photograph the views from some of the highest penthouses in the world? And if you happen to look just like world-famous megachurch pastor Joel Osteen, how far do you think you'd get if you tried to sneak into one of his events? Plus?
4: I think. Oh no. <gasps> I'm going into children's liturgy whether I like
2: it or not. Hear about an accidental case of acting like you belong. I'm Kai owen Wolf. And this is Audacious. Stay with me.
0: The strong man is trembling.
2: This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. This hour, we celebrate the subreddit, Act Like You Belong. It's a community of people who share articles and stories about sneaking into concerts, pretending to be store employees, and even unintentional cases of acting like you belong, like Claire Edwards. She's a 30-year-old healthcare worker from Wales. And for the purpose of this story, it's important that you know she has a condition called proportionate dwarfism, She's four foot nine and also happens to have a very young looking face. Claire's story begins in front of a Roman Catholic church on a hill. And it's also important that you know that she was 14 years old at the time. And it was no ordinary Palm Sunday. It was a very fateful
4: Palm Sunday. Um, The church where my family go to, is in the middle of the city center, but it's on a hill. And it's halfway up the hill. The priest thought it would be a good idea for everyone to congregate at the bottom of the hill. And everyone had to collect a palm and then everyone had to sing a hymn and walk up the hill whilst carrying these palms and then go into the church. And there were two palm options available. There were these single dried leaves of a palm branch tree and they were folded into these crosses. The other option were these full blown palm tree branches that were dried. They were at least five foot tall, weren't they? Maybe even bigger. And of course, little old me thought, I want one of those. So of course I toddled over, said, can I have one, please? And the minister was like, yes, of course you can, go ahead. So of course then, we all had to start going up the hill, singing a hymn. I can't even remember what hymn it was because I was just too upset with my palm. I'm holding it up in the air. I'm staring up at it thinking, wow, this thing is huge, this is amazing, I can actually be seen. And I'm not taking in anything other than the fact that this palm is massive and it's so cool. And suddenly I'm snapped out of my palm adoration when I realised I can't see my parents anywhere. And I'm suddenly in a sea of children, and most are smaller than me, and I'm thinking, what on earth is going on? And I realized they were holding the palms that are the same as mine, like the big branches.
2: They were sorting palms.
4: Yes, they were, because I turned around, all the adults had the crosses, the leaves that were folded into the crosses. I'm thinking, oh, no, what's happening? And suddenly I realized I'm being herded into the church hall with all the children. I'm thinking, oh, no, there's only one way that this is going to go down. I'm going into children's liturgy, whether I like it or not. I was way past the oldest age to be allowed into children's liturgy, but no, here I go. And then of course it was, okay children, everyone sit on the floor now in a circle. And I'm thinking, oh no. So I'm sat down now on the floor in this wooden dance floor with all these children. Some of them are about four, maybe a little bit younger. And I'm trying to hide my face behind this big palm, and I'm peeking around it, and I'm thinking, only one option put the palm down. I'm going to have to pretend to be a child.
2: <laughs> this is where, like, some sort of theme music enters.
4: Yeah, and it's probably going to be something like, do, 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 <laughs> I'm guessing, I don't know. Well, then it was, right then, children, you have to introduce yourself now to all your new friends. So say your name, your age. And the school you go to. I'm thinking, "Mm." oh no, this this is getting worse. And the children all saying their age what school they go to. And I'm thinking, "Uh uh-oh, they're all a lot younger. They're seven, six. So I start looking at the other kids in the circle. I'm thinking, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And it came to me, hi, I'm Claire, I'm 11. And then I proceeded to tell them the name of my old primary school, which I hadn't been to in a couple of years. Not a flicker of doubt crossed the children's liturgy teacher's face at all. I'm just sat there thinking, okay, that went well. That went better than I expected. Okay, okay, I can do this, I can do this. First way we start to move, this girl came bounding up to me. Hi, I thought I was the oldest one here. Oh, and you're 11 too. This is amazing. And I was thinking, oh no, this poor girl, she genuinely thinks I'm 11. Oh no, oh no, oh no. And I felt really guilty because I thought, oh, no, I've technically lied in
2: church. (laughs) I was just thinking that you have lied now twice in a church setting.
4: (laughs) I felt so guilty. And this poor girl genuinely believed I was the same age as her. And she latched on to me. So we colored and she was talking to me about school and I'm thinking, I'm going to have to try and remember what happened when I was 11 when I was in school.
2: <laughs> like what you were into? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or like what are the kids into now?
4: I was a, I can't remember what we talked about, but I remember trying to portray myself as best as I could as an 11-year-old. And then afterwards, the, the teacher was like, right well, then, okay. It's time to go into the church and show the congregation and the priests everything that we did today. Presentation time. And I figured, oh no, uh oh. And they started picking people to read things out, and they were getting closer to me. And I was like, oh no, oh no. Luckily, it was the girl that latched herself onto me that got given the piece of paper to read something out. Sigh of so relief. But then it was, oh, we have to go in height order. Okay. I was at the back of the line because I was one of the tallest. For once. Yeah, for once in my life, I was one of the tallest. Yeah, not counting the fact that everyone else was a kid, (laughs) but there we go. Never mind. So we all go in through this side door there that connects this whole thing into the church. And we all walked up the central aisle up onto the steps of the altar. And I had to stand on the top step with all the taller kids. And then they figured I am tall. Look at me. Look at me amongst these people. I am wonderful. <laughs> I am giant. And then I suddenly clock my parents in their usual spot on this one particular pew, right next to Father Smith's confessional box. <laughs> and I can—I know exactly where they sit. I can still remember it to this day. And their shoulders shaking in silent hysterical laughter. The situation that I found myself in, when I spoke to my parents afterwards about it, they were like, you should have seen your face walking in. You were looking around, proper shifty. I was like, I try not to be shifty. But no one batted an eyelid. No one thought anything of it. No one realized. So I acted like I belonged and probably it worked.
2: (laughs) Wow. Okay, so one thing I think about when I reflect on your story is that, Because you're so much shorter than the average person, you maybe often feel othered when you're out and about. And for once, you were not othered. Did it make you wish that you were fitting in, so to speak, more often? Or was it just a singular experience that doesn't really have anything to do with your life after?
4: It was kind of like a mix of both, really, because my identity's always been the halfling, the hobbit, um, I was known as Mapus or La Puce in France. That was my nickname there, which is the flea or my flea. But um, it was like in that moment, I was one of the taller ones. And I was like, "Ooh, this is interesting. This is new. And it has stuck with me. Like that's how the whole memory has stuck with me. The fact that I was able to infiltrate unintentionally a group of children and just fit in, but be one of the taller ones and one of the older ones.
2: Yeah, you got like a peek at that inverse of your situation.
4: Yeah. A few people have said to me, oh, you could totally like infiltrate schools and do drug busts in schools. And I'm like, no, <laughs> no, because I'll end up blabbing something because there's so much hiding and turning away into the corner you can do. So it'll end up slipping. So <laughs> not for me.
2: Well, Claire Edwards from Wales, you're awesome and I love talking with you. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me.
4: Oh, thank you very much. You're awesome too. Thank you very much for inviting me and having me on. I appreciate it.
2: All right, now picture mega church pastor Joel Osteen. Now picture his twin. That twin is Michael Klimkowski. Well, he's not actually Joel's twin, but he looks like he could be his twin. He's also an actor, comedian, and writer from Los Angeles. And after years of refining his Osteen impressions, he and his friends decided it was time to impersonate Joel at one of his touring church services, which happened to be in town. I asked Michael how he prepared himself to do this thing.
1: Deep, deep prayer, (laughs) silent retreat. I, uh... (laughs) You know, I've, I've uh, do comedy in Los Angeles, and every year Saturday Night Live will has an opportunity to cast up and coming comics. And so, you know, my manager will text me or email me and say, "Hey, it's that time of year. Typically in the summer, have your reel ready. So you got to have your original characters and your impressions. How am I not going to be doing a Joel Osteen impression since we're basically carbon copies?" So I had been working on that a little bit. So that was like basically my rehearsing, but that's a quick little bit. You know, I write maybe a minute monologue and, you know, do the accent and a ton of blinking. But as far as doing going and doing it in public, my thinking was, all right, I've submitted tapes to SNL. I've got a live audition out in LA. I've never been to New York city. I'm like, you gotta mix it up. You can't just do the same thing and hope for different results. So I was like, I'm going next level with my buddies. And a few of them, Work for some uh, production companies that do like sort of like, I don't know, like gonzo style comedy. Like a Sacha Baron Cohen type comedy or Nathan Fielder where it's out in in the real world. You're getting reactions. And so they're like, dude, you should just, this Joel Osteen event's coming to LA. And uh, we just decided to go for it and then get some good material. And, you know, we've done a million videos and this one was the one that got a million views.
2: What was the best case scenario for this infiltration?
1: Our premise was like, okay, go and do some non-characteristic Joel things. So like sort of maybe be like a little bit. And if you watch the video, I'm just saying like go Stroh's or I'm at, I'm asking for a brewski, seeing if they got beer at my church event and, and just kind of getting some fun reactions. And um, we probably wanted a good video for the internet of three minutes. So just a few good laughs, a few good reactions, and then we're out.
2: There was one scene in the parking lot where... <laughs> Somebody sees you and they go, Joel, and you go, it's
1: Joel, it's God, enjoy.
2: It's Joel, it's God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> did that just come out of nowhere or were you holding on to that?
1: Before we went out, we like did a um, document where we all kind of like typed in a bunch of jokes, like fun lines, we could say. So it's all just kind of floating around in my mind. And I have that's probably more of a little little more harsh commentary on, you know, some people like following Joel more than, you know, who Joel is a messenger of.
2: At one point, this lady comes up to you and asks... She asks for a picture. And you say... I got these long
1: arms. I'm three. Jesus was five. five. Come on. <laughs> I'm looking for a beer, but they only got... Something. That was in the hopper. All right, that one was ready to go. And that one worked out so great, you know, because it's just a problem that everyone has when taking selfies, you know. And, and me, actually, I am tall. People are always like, hey, you have long arms. So it probably just was there. It was in the ether, ready to be made.
2: So you get to security and you... Ask in the third person. Where's Joel's entrance? Uh, How do they react to you?
1: Zero skepticism. They're just like, come right on in here. We love it. Security's like, man, big fans. I'm, I'm throwing out a little. When I'm nervous, I probably say, like, bless you or amen, like, probably 50 times if you watch the video. That's just me being nervous. Like, bless you. Amen. Like, bless you.
2: God bless you. God bless you. And God bless you. When people reacted positively to you and started beaming at you and wanting pictures with you and were just, like, just by being in your presence, we're lifted, how did that feel for you in this weird position where, like, you are being yourself, but you're also knowingly being someone else? Like, how did it feel to be around that sort of reaction?
1: It, it was definitely a mixed feeling of, like, oh, th- I was like, this is so cool. And I was, like, nervous of getting in trouble. Or, or what's gonna happen and then I was like, really wanting to get some good material and, and I knew that it was like a good opportunity. So it was a lot of thoughts, so all just probably mixed up under the broad stroke of like excitement and nerves and um, telling myself, look, just stay in character, focus on the mission which changed in real time, which was once we were past security, JT's like, we gotta get you on the stage. And, and there's even that part in the video where in the concessionary area, and you, and I break here. And I go, "Oh, dude, no!" I think we should try to get you on stage. <laughs> no, dude. That's insane. I'm oh, like, "All right, we came this far." I was like, "What do I, I'm I'm parking cars during the day? What, what do I gotta lose?" And uh, you know, then then the rest of the events ensued.
2: Yeah, so you get to the stage area, and um, after that, things start to turn. What were you hearing? That maybe made your heart start to race in a way that it wasn't racing before.
1: Behind me, I just kind of hear like what I assumed was somebody like calling someone on a radio or whatever, and they're like, impersonator, impersonator. Then I'm like, we gotta go, we gotta go, take a few pictures, and we, we start heading out. And that's when you hear that like SEAL team six dude of like Joel Security like hey. Hey. sit down
0: and <laughs> the what? because I just told you. But so. I'm asking just why.
1: What show it now or we go to jail? Why do I All go right. to jail? Okay, you're going to jail. All right, we're exiting. We're, we're we want to cause no trouble. Don't worry about it. Everybody's going to jail. Sir, can I ask you a question, sir? It was very yeah, it was scary. He's like, sit down. Who's here with you? And a lot of times they'll be like, oh, give me the, the camera footage or whatever. And so my buddy Reggie, was he was like, Johnny, on the spot, he just takes the little um, SD card out, puts it in his pocket in case they're like, oh, we need this. But they didn't even ask. And then they just kind of questioned us. They kept us there and like, look, we're going to escort you guys out of here. They kind of just put us on these golf carts. They they take our IDs. They like took our pictures so they would know if we came back. They'd have all that documented.
2: And you got a free golf cart ride.
1: That was actually really awesome, and it beat traffic. You know what I mean?
2: Like, <laughs> LA traffic.
1: Yeah, yeah. Didn't have to wait in any event in LA traffic. Like this is great.
2: If you could have done anything differently, what would you have done differently?
1: Probably like just not got scared at the stage and just got up there. Maybe that would have resulted in me going downtown. But honestly, if you go to jail for comedy in hindsight, I'm like, cool. That's, I'm like, I'd like to have that on a resume. Uh, in real time, I'm like, no, I don't want to be part of that. I want to go sleep in my bed. But yeah, probably just being cooler under uh, pressure.
2: Well, Michael Klimkowski, thanks for talking to me.
1: Of course. Thank you.
6: After the break. I would opt for this like uh, sophisticated uh, look kind of like a look which you cannot really say how much it costs.
2: How one woman impersonated a Hungarian billionaire. Well I mean she is actually Hungarian but she is not a billionaire to make a photo book of scenes from penthouse apartments built for the ultra wealthy. I'm Kion Wolf. This is audacious. Be right back. <laughs> This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today's show is inspired by the subreddit, Act Like You Belong, which is where I read an article about Andy Schmied. Andy's an artist and architect living in Budapest, and she's the author of the photo book, Private Views, a high-rise panorama of Manhattan. Of course, getting up to those multi-million dollar penthouses that were the subject of the book isn't going to happen for just anybody, so Andy transformed herself into somebody who has billions of dollars in the bank. I asked her to bring me back to the very beginning of this idea.
6: I just really simply liked the view from the Empire State Building, as everyone does, and I was just really wondering how the view from all those other high spots could be. Because, for example, no direct view on the Central Park is available to the public in any ways, and even all those other semi-public spots, which people can access are like you know like you go there once in your life or twice in your life as a tourist paying I don't know 40 50 dollars but it's not something that most people can access so on one hand it's like um, fascination with the view but on the other hand it's like inaccessibility and all the adventure around it I guess so when it was quite easy to realize that all of those like very high spots are private residentials so there was no other way to go up there.
2: Will you talk about creating this character, Gabriela Schmid? You started off with the name, which is your middle name and your real surname. Did you plan on being yourself, but with a different name? Or did you intend on having a different kind of persona, since a billionaire may not speak or act like the rest of us?
6: Yeah, I kind of, I think, was as much myself as it was permitted in the context so like once i arrived to the viewing i was asking my genuine questions about the property and i was telling very often my genuine opinion if something i found ugly or cheap looking or all of that stuff which i had let's say the knowledge for as an architect uh, and a designer and obviously the baseline was or like the bottom of it all was like a big lie because obviously i cannot afford these places i don't have a husband who i claimed i have (laughs) Did you find that
2: because you were inhabiting a person with a different financial circumstance that you were able to be a little more crude isn't the word, but straightforward with your opinions?
6: Of course. Yes, of course. And also I was obviously treated very differently, which I was of course never treated in this way before in my life. And I'm not sure I will ever be and I'm not sure I feel like. Being treated like that, but...
2: Well, I mean, if book sales go really well, you could end up being the billionaire who you impersonated. Yeah. (laughs) Let me back up a little bit. When you would contact these real estate agents and tell them who you are, what else would they want to know about you?
6: The very first question, usually, when they realize that I'm kind of ungoogleable with Gabriela Schmidt, nothing, no person really comes up. Um, Then my first question was, who is your husband? And sometimes even without them researching me or like Gabriela, they're just like, okay, so can you tell us the name or the business name of your husband? Which is really crazy, obviously.
2: <laughs> and I'm glad it's crazy now. I mean, of course, decades ago, that would be like, of course, they would ask about your husband. So it's great that it's crazy to us, but it's still crazy.
6: Yeah, of course. But at the same time, like currently 95% of billionaires are males, so... Of course, it was like super shocking to me, this question, but that's the word these agents live in, I guess. Still, it's really strange that they do ask this, but...
2: <laughs> all right, let's go to a day in the life of a fake Hungarian billionaire who wants to take pictures from penthouses in New York City. First of all, would you dress up all fancy?
6: Uh, not fancy. I, I don't think that's the word. I would always opt for this like uh, sophisticated uh, look. Kind of like a look which you cannot really say how much it costs. So let's say a black little dress or um, unicolor everything. And um, I didn't go to a manicurist, which I never ever in my life before I did. So that was an experience for me, but I guess that's a uh, norm. <laughs> I did my hair every day. I put on a little makeup, which I don't usually do. So these like very minor things. But after a very short time, it was very easy to realize that it absolutely doesn't matter what I wear or how I look. Once they take you seriously to the point of showing you the apartment, it doesn't matter how you look like, they're going to treat you equal.
2: So, all right, you get to the penthouse, you meet the real estate agent, they bring you up. What kind of strategies would the real estate agent use to try to persuade you to buy this place?
6: Mm, There were quite different strategies, actually. I think it's also a generational thing in my experience. So younger agents are more just like talking to you, asking about, of course, they are pushing you a bit to tell your husband it would be a great investment. And the slightly older agents, I think they were more prone to do almost like theatrical scenes where they would make me imagine things. They would make me close my eyes they would ask me to um, look out the window and imagine my life here with the champagne in my hands with my husband, and this kind of like super, it was almost like comical somehow. But, but they really, it was very obvious that they like rehearsed it. And I'm not the first one they say it to. Plus, they always try to make it as personal the tours as much as they know about you. So they knew that I have a son. So they always um, try to talk about him, like what he would do, and how great for a boy this apartment is, and how they knew I'm Hungarian. So they also talked a lot about that. Like, uh, yeah, there are a lot of diplomats in the building, and some from your area. Or um, there was also music references. Some of them put music for me. It's like Edith Piaf song. Edith Piaf, what song of hers?
2: which translates to I regret nothing yes exactly exactly which is kind of perfect for you like if you, if this were a movie that would be the theme coming up over the credits
6: exactly and it was really also this like very cinematic scene she sat down on the sofa closed curtains she made me close my eyes and then She told me that because I'm European and I'm so sophisticated, I sure, she bets I love Edith Piaf. I said, yeah, sure. (laughs) What could I answer? And then she just like opened the curtains and there was like Central Park at our feet. So these kind of like very banal things, but a lot of them. Were there any amenities
2: that really surprised you? Like, oh, this is how they live.
6: Amenities? Yes, a lot, a lot, a lot of them. The newer and newer buildings are making crazier and crazier amenities. So, of course, like before, this like gym and pool was the basic, and that's kind of okay. But in the US buildings, um, I mean, one of the most standard thing now in you know, all the new buildings is a golf simulator room. They just say that like, oh yeah, there is the golf simulator, like the most basic thing now.
2: Yeah, toilet, kitchen counter, golf simulator. Yes, yes, yes. Now. I'm sure real estate agents are totally used to people taking pictures uh, of the places that they're seeing, but especially with their smartphones. But you didn't use a smartphone. Talk about the camera you used and and why you used it.
6: It's an old Nikon camera, very basic one. Film, yeah? Yes, yes, yes. And I started to, and obviously they just tell you, oh, so go around and take pictures for your husband. So it's like, even they are like encouraging you to do that. And then some of them of course commented on it that they, they actually really loved it. And I think in their eyes, it really fitted this persona of this like billionaire, who's just like walking around thinking about the apartment. So that's also the thing that like everything goes in this atmosphere or like once you're in anything, They just consider it, oh, she's a bit weird or she's a bit like this, she's a bit like that. But it really is part of the persona. They never really doubted me.
2: So nobody caught on to what you were
6: doing? I don't think so. No, I don't think so. They just didn't get the sale. Yeah, exactly. I just chose another apartment or I just changed my mind. Yeah.
2: Of all of the 25 apartments, which one would Gabriella have bought?
6: Gabriella would have bought fifty six leonard uh, it's by a Swiss architect duo. I think that was in most in sync with her aesthetics or like what Gabriella likes like it's that's the only building which it is like ultra contemporary aesthetic. so like concrete all over the apartment, which is very unusual in this um, otherwise ultra luxury atmosphere which more is in this like sphere of golden things and the rococo details. So this one actually has like very big bare concrete columns inside the apartment and like no ornamentation in any ways. And I think that's what she was meant to be somehow. She dressed like that. She acted. Yeah.
2: What did being Gabriella do for you besides making this wonderful book? How did that serve you, Andy?
6: Um, it's a very good question. Um, I think in general, I like to act or like to play. I don't know. It, it really took this like play full side out of me and I could just like, just do things I would never do. I think it's it really, it made me feel that I can do whatever I want somehow or I don't know, in a in a way, but yeah.
2: Do you think that you would do anything like
6: this again? Mm, certainly not the same. Gabriela has retired fully. She's in the soaking tub, <laughs> enjoying her champagne, listening to Edith Piaf. Um, I mean, I, I, I will certainly do more things with like luxury and architecture and all these kind of subjects, but probably in a different way because also I don't think any emergencies agencies would accept any Hungarian billionaires to come <laughs> now. And I would then be happy to go back again up in those places, but uh, I doubt in the same way I would never be able to. (laughs) Well,
2: Andy Gabriella (laughs) Schmid, author of Private Views, a high-rise panorama of Manhattan, which you can get on our website. That's Andy Schmid, A-N-D-I-S-C-H-M-I-E-D.com. Thank you for talking with me.
6: Thank you so much. (laughs)
2: Audacious is produced by me and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. To subscribe and listen back to shows about things like the philosophy that it's immoral to have children and we should collectively self-extinct, Life is a Death Doula and what we can learn from people who have a rare disease and the folks who love them, visit ctpublic.org audacious. Send me your reactions and show ideas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kayo and Wolf. And if you've ever acted like you belonged so you could fit in where you otherwise weren't allowed to, I really want to hear your thoughts. My email is cwolf at ctpublic.org, and online use the hashtag audaciouspublic. Thanks for listening.